You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. I'll be sharing some bite-sized brain science, thought-provoking questions, and mind-bending ideas about how our brains work, change, learn, and adapt, and how we can use the knowledge emerging from the field of neuroscience to open up new possibilities and make the progress we want in all areas of our lives. Hey there, and welcome to this episode. Now, you've probably heard the saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, what if the old dog is capable of new tricks, but he just doesn't want to? What if the old dog is happy with the way he's always done things and can't see a good enough reason to adapt your newfangled methods of stick fetching? When we realize it's not a case of can't, but more one of won't, then we need to find a different way of looking at things. First of all, the can't in this instance is about the teacher, but we're not even going to go there today. That's a whole other can of worms. So whether or not the old dog is actually capable of learning new tricks, that's not even really covered in that little catchphrase. But like so many other phrases that have passed beyond truth or falsehood to a level of unspoken acceptance, the old dog is a bit like his metaphorical cousin, the leopard who can't change his spots. These sayings reflect older beliefs about the brain and its capabilities, including a belief that once we reached maturity, our ability to change decreased or stopped altogether. Of course, we now know that this doesn't even come close to the truth, and that neuroplasticity, our brain's ability to rewire itself through learning and change, continues right throughout life. So the old dog can learn new tricks, but the question is, does he want to? And this is where it gets interesting. There are so many factors that affect whether Doggo will actually engage with the learning. And of course, by Doggo, I mean us and our brains, just in case anyone missed that. So why would Doggo not want to learn something new? I mean, surely learning new stuff gives us an edge. It creates better opportunities. It makes us feel better about ourselves and all that good stuff. Well, yes and no. It depends on what you're asking Doggo to learn. Say, for example, that Doggo has always been trained to do things a certain way and has been rewarded for doing things that way, then it's going to take effort to change his behaviour, right? Effort, which takes energy and probably some patience. And we're not that much different, really. Possibly a little more complex, but there are definite similarities. Take, for instance, our core emotional needs. As social animals, we want to feel a sense of belonging. And that's one of several core needs. So our tricks, aka our behaviours, both old and new, tend to support our chance of belonging. Whether we want to impress someone by demonstrating our diligence or being friendly and charming or any number of other things, we do it so as to support that particular need. We don't like to feel rejected or excluded. So in the main, we take care not to do things that would bring about that outcome. Now that's all well and good, but that unconscious bias towards our core emotional needs at certain levels of consciousness or effectiveness can definitely get in our way from time to time. I'll bet you can think of a time, for example, where you wondered what other people would think or say if you took a certain course of action. And that's your brain protecting that social need to belong. And of course, there's the brain's role in managing our resources, our body budget of things like glucose and water and so on. This is another of the reasons that Doggo might feel unmotivated to learn something new. It might bring risks which do not tie in with the mission statement of keeping us safe from harm. However, he's interpreting that right now. I had an experience of almost exactly this situation recently, and I want to share it with you because I recognize the feelings and reactions, the pattern of the event, if you like, from previous times that something like this had happened. But this time, something was different. And the difference was in that I learned about how my brain works 
and how that was affecting my ability to work through what was going on. So here's what happened. I was doing typical entrepreneur stuff, putting a website in place, working on subscriber lists, domain names, all that fun stuff that I'd really rather not ever have to do. But this is where it is in business. Sometimes you just need to do the thing, right? Only this time the thing went terribly wrong and I was close to a deadline and I was sitting there faced with the realization that the system I'd planned to use just wasn't going to work on this occasion. So with about eight hours to go, I sat there looking at the screen in the full and certain knowledge that things were not going well. Now, I tend to live a pretty calm life these days, but I recognize sensations and feelings that I hadn't experienced in a while. What were they? I began to notice what was going on in my body, tension in the gut, something in the way my mind's eye was whirling around. I realized for the first time why it's called blind panic. It's not just a turn of phrase. Our visuals, our internal cinema, that stuff can be really affected by this kind of stressful situation. So what else was going on here? Well, somewhere inside, my inner monitor was telling me off for being disorganized and leaving it so close to the deadline to complete this task. That wasn't helping. Plus, having done pretty much the same thing many times before, I think the old inner monitor stroke critic was being a bit heavy handed. But funnily, when you're aware of these things, it's easier to stop them carrying you away. It's easier to avoid being pulled into the downward spiral. So the inner, inner monitor was given the rest of the day off. The next thing that happened was that I realized I'd have to find a way around this. I didn't really have an option. I'd committed to do something and I was going to have to find a way to do it. And okay, the world certainly wouldn't have ended if I hadn't done it. And there's a good chance that it wouldn't even have been noticed. But that was the commitment I made and I wanted to uphold that. So that then left me in a position where I had to decide how to complete this task. I turned on what I call the Mullinator, which is basically where I let all the ideas come to mind without a particular attachment to what comes up. It's, I suppose, a sort of internal masterminding session. There is a technique that you can use on a regular basis to make that more effective when you have an emergency requirement for it. Napoleon Hill called it the invisible council. I know that some people consider it a bit way out, but like so many things in his writing, I can take those same tools today and draw parallels to the tools and techniques being used by coaches applying the findings coming from neuroscience. Hill's Invisible Council was made up of people, both dead and alive, that he would like to ask for advice, to draw on their wisdom, if you like. He would call the meeting to order every night before he went to sleep and ask those present for advice. His council grew over time and included, amongst other things, philosophers, presidents and patriots. The trick in Hill's Invisible Council is that he had researched each member and knew their work and their ethics and their biographies. All of this information, of course, was available to his unconscious brain, which was able to form educated guesses about the advice that any of the attendees would give. And it makes sense to do this before going to sleep as the mind drops down through the levels of brainwaves and so on and becomes more dreamlike. A more modern version of this is the well-known coaching tool where the client chooses from a variety of hats to wear. In putting on each different hat, they step into a new perspective from which to look at the problem. It's this ability to step into different perspectives and different modes of thought that creates options that we don't normally think of alone. Anyway, in searching through the resources I had at my disposal, I somehow solved the internal Rubik's Cube and found a solution. The only problem with the solution was that it would require a whole lot of new learning in a very short space of time. My inner doggo had a bit of a freak out at that stage, under eight hours to go and new systems to set up and learn. Okay, I told myself, 
First things first, get coffee. Okay, coffee is good. Yes, coffee. Next, write an article for LinkedIn. Wait, what? How is a LinkedIn article urgent? Deirdre, you've got about seven hours at this point to make this work. What the hell? as my son used to say when he was small. Well, of course it wasn't even remotely urgent, but good old Doggo had a real sense that there was some serious concentration coming and that was going to be a real drain on resources. So naturally, he kept throwing me sticks, which I'd run off to fetch instead of getting down to the task at hand. Doggo puts the pro in procrastination, I can tell you. But of course, I'm wise to this now. And thanks to the joys of learning about neuroscience, I know the tricks that this doggo's got up his sleeve. And if I'm honest, writing did help a little. It helped me to focus on the sensations and emotions I was feeling. And naming what we're feeling is a recognised part of the toolkit for dealing with stress. Plus, I kept it brief. It was only a few paragraphs, really. So give the dog a bone. That wasn't such a terrible idea after all. Another thing that I did as I coached myself through the situation was to reframe what was happening. We can look at things in a positive or a negative light. We can look at them proactively or reactively. There's no light without shadow, as I'm forever saying. And we can choose which side of the looking glass we're in. So I decided that my situation at this time was a perfect opportunity to test and observe my neuroplasticity in action. A proper, thorough workout of the old grey matter, if you will. And for some reason, this realisation was probably the best thing I could have done for Doggo's motivation. All of a sudden, the situation went from being a bleak and stressful one to one where I had this opportunity to work through all I'd learned about my brain and put it to the test. And on top of that, who'd want to fail this kind of test, right? Not me for sure. I mean, learning, change, possibility, these are my watchwords. So that simple reframe of the situation motivated me to look at what I was doing, not as a dreaded task fraught with aggravation and frustration, but something where I could actually come out of this feeling better and more accomplished. It's an easy turn to miss, though, when we're in the middle of a situation. And this, I think, is why the pause is so important and why taking the time to write a few paragraphs and reflect on what was going on in my mind and body really made a difference. And the other thing to note here is the contrast between productive and destructive stress. In its positive form, it's known as eustress, which I may have mentioned before. Eustress feels much more like excitement and enthusiasm than its unproductive counterpart, which can leave us feeling overwhelmed and as though we should try and avoid or escape the situation. Eustress is much more likely to feel right than its anxiety-ridden cousin. At the end of the day, on this occasion, I did get everything done. Late in the night, maybe, but I got it done. And maybe it wasn't perfect, but for many of us in the entrepreneur game, it's better done than perfect, right? Then we can reiterate and we can improve. But we've started, and that's the important thing. My instincts to feel overwhelmed and avoid dealing with the issue were not going to serve me that day. And that's one of the key things I noticed. In the past, if I'd been stressed or in a situation where I didn't want to make the changes I knew were necessary, one of my body's reactions is to feel tired. It's like the brain literally goes, okay, you have too many tabs running and you've crashed the system. Please shut down your computer. And also, I was able to see my executive function, the prefrontal cortex, and my unconscious mind working hand in hand because I recognized what each was trying to do. I know that my prefrontal cortex does a great job if it's well rested, nourished, and generally taken care of. Otherwise, it's capable of throwing toddler-worthy tantrums. And this is something that many of us fail to recognize. We may be aware that self-care is important, but as a subset within self-care, there's brain care. And if we're not on it with that, 
then realistically, do we expect to be at our best and most effective? I don't know if you saw the series Chernobyl. I I found that fascinating on so many levels, not least of which being that this nuclear disaster was an event that I remember as a child and that we probably still don't realise the impact of. But also, I love the description of how and why the meltdown actually happened. And it's a great analogy for us and for our self-care. So I'm not a nuclear physicist, so please forgive me if I don't do the physics very well. In my family, physics is what my sister is for, actually. But it went something like this anyway. The system needed to be kept in balance. And when it was running properly, it was a cycle which, although it created its problems, it also seemed to solve them as it went. So, for instance, xenon, which would poison the system, was burned off by the system working and so on. The levels of reactions that were happening were determined by the control rods, the self-care part of the system. Tweaking the rods controlled the system, hence the name, I guess. But when all the rods were removed and the brakes were effectively taken off the reaction, then there was meltdown. We all know people who get hangry, right? It's like a mini brain meltdown. The control rods of self-care haven't been properly applied and we don't really do very well without them. Of course, some of us have greater resilience than others and can manage for longer and so on. But at the end of the day, when we reach our limits, we reach our limits. And if we're not managing the brain care, then we're asking for trouble. And in many ways, brain care isn't rocket science. It sounds like common sense to say we need water, good nutrition and rest. But these are non-negotiables in the list of ways to support our brain functions. It doesn't sound difficult, does it? But we probably don't pay as much attention to it as we should. And in neglecting it, we're making these situations more difficult for ourselves than they have to be. Thinking that we can get away without eating, for example, might seem like a way of saving time. But in terms of how well we perform or make decisions, is this really the most efficient way of doing things? Think of it this way. If you've got a golden opportunity to turn your plans into a thriving business, would you really want to look back and say, you know what, that would have succeeded if only I'd been more sensible about my brain care? And of course, this is where we can choose to shape our outcomes through seemingly unrelated actions. When we look at our lives as a whole, our body, our mind, our spirit and our connections, then it makes sense that neglecting any part of that system will also have a knock-on effect on the others. Similarly, when those parts are functioning well and they're benefiting from careful management of our control rods, then they can each support each other when required. The positive brain care helping us to avoid overwhelm and meltdown or the connections that we nurture with others so that we can get the support we need when we need it. It's a very beautiful system if you think about it. And seeing it as an interconnected whole is something that can really help us stay on on track and stay effective. And actually, this is the one final thing I'll say about this today, about this whole system approach. This is the key to finding that sometimes elusive why, the purpose that helps us to pursue our vision and make progress. Our values, our desires and our actions, they all need to be in harmony. And if they're not, no matter how much you're paying attention to your nutrition, for example, you're still not going to be in balance. I notice this when I look at some of the things that people bring with them from their corporate lives as they start their entrepreneur or solopreneur journey. For many, of course, they're leaving the corporate world not just to push their own potential, but also to find more balance in their lives. And the thing about balance is that it is something that we have to work on something that we have to take the time to interrogate and understand. Where are we strong? Where do we tend to let things slide? If we truly want balance, then that in itself is a skill and one that takes diligence and effort, both in understanding and execution. But the rewards are great. And in many ways, finding that balance, the balance that caters to our whole being, 
is also finding our why, which very often brings with it purpose and drive. Of course, we have to be careful that we don't try to apply corporate ways of achieving these things to our very personal and individual lives. Our business success isn't just a numbers game. It's a life game too. I don't care how much money I could make, unless I'm living a life I love with all that entails, then the money doesn't mean all that much, does it? (laughs) Spike Milligan summed up something that most of us never really see apart from in retrospect when he said, all I ask is the chance to prove that money can't make me happy. There are certain things that it seems we're destined to learn for ourselves. Of course, I'm not saying that none of it is about numbers either. I'm saying it's about more than numbers. It's about unquantifiables, like waking up excited to start your day, like having clients that you respect and who value you in return, like being able to have as much time as you need to spend with the people you love. None of those things show up in the numbers column, so your objectives and key results need to be tempered with an understanding that this is life, not just work. And it's all part of the same system, your system, dependent on the same control rods and self-care. And if you're moving from a nine to five to your own business, then it's even more important to notice and understand these control rods They literally can make the difference between success and failure, the difference between stress and eustress. But fortunately for us, we have our built-in ability to learn and change. Our doggo is a good doggo, and he's well able to learn a few new tricks, especially when we've got a handle on how to help him learn them. That's all I'm going to say today. Um, As I'm sure you can guess, I could probably go on a lot longer, but I won't. (laughs) And I do hope this has helped you understand a bit more about how we can use the science to be more effective as we build our businesses and live our lives. As always, I'll pop some links and info in the show notes and you know where to get me if you want to reach out. See you next time. You've been listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, your weekly source for brain science tools, tips and techniques. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. It's why I want to make sure that every single episode contains game changers with the potential to elevate your performance and enjoyment to the next level in all areas of life. If you want to catch up between shows, check the show notes for my links. Meanwhile, if you hit subscribe right now, you'll always be first to hear when the next episode is available. Until then, my friend, imagine the possibilities.